Good morning, y'all. Well, uh, a few weeks back, we were walking back from our staff lunch, so Lorenzo, uh, Amy, and I, and and we came across um, a little piece of positive propaganda. Um, I think I have the picture behind it. So we came across positive propaganda, which said positivity is just imagining that tomorrow could be better, to which someone came along with a purple marker, scribbled out and edited it to now say, tomorrow could be better or worse. Um, and I just thought about this. Um, what I just love people that like that. that w- w- what what came across someone to say, "Where's my marker? Something must be done about this." These are my kind of people. But I was thinking about this positive propaganda and in the reaction to it with this, you know, purple marker wielding, you know, vigilante. And uh, as we've come into the new year and just how much every turning of the new calendar is just like saturated with some form of like positive propaganda, right? Like what more is new year, new you, but like a positive propaganda that like nothing's changed. There's no newness about me. Like at a molecular level, like I'm always changing in a sense. I'm, I'm always a new me. But at the same sense, I am very, that was some of you guys, you don't know that. You are constantly changing. All of the molecules in your body, sorry, um, on an atomic level, you are always a new you. Um, but also, I'm very much the this, this same me. Like, I didn't wake up on January 1st with, like, I, I inherited all of my poor diet decisions of 2023 on January 1st. There is no new, right? And yet, we still live within all of this positive propaganda of new year, new you, setting out new ambitions, new resolutions, new, what are you going to do this year? What are you going to be this year? all of this new options, this wide horizon. And and amidst all of that kind of positive propaganda, there's like this sneaking feeling that wells up within all of it, like this internal purple marker that comes in and writes like, new year, new you, or you'll just be the same like whatever you are, right? Like this 2024 could be better or worse, (laughs) right? Like, I just know some of you, as a pastor in this community, I know some of you who, what you went through over the past 12 months, you never would have expected or guessed, and yet here you are. And so a lot of that is, as you're setting up the new year, we want to believe the best, we want to have some kind of optimism, and yet you have no reason for assuming that. You could be going into the worst thing ever. So in the midst of this wide open new horizon, which culturally we want to say, woohoo, positive you know, propaganda, we all have this creeping thing that now therapists and psychologists have begun to kind of refer to and coin as new year, new year's anxiety. So set apart from, you know, more like clinical anxiety, new year's and more than just kind of generalized anxiety, new year's anxiety, therapists and psychologists identify as something which many people go through, that as we step into the new year with all the new possibilities, all the burdens of resolutions that we're putting on ourselves, all of the plans, all of the questions that we have and the indecent, right, the uncertainty and the unknown is, is as the ball drops, it's like the anxiety rises. There's this new year's anxiety, And so as I've been moving into 2024 and all that I don't know that it might contain, I've been wondering, what do I do with that anxiety? What do I do with those questions? What do I do with the uncertainty and the unknown as I move into 2024? And I'm sure maybe you're asking some of the same questions, or at least you're you're at least resonating with like, oh, that's the question I should be asking. Because right now I feel paralyzed to move into the New Year's. One author reflecting on New Year's anxiety, he he talked to about he talked about it as a black hole that you're slowly pulled into over the course of the first couple of weeks. And ultimately, that's what kind of eats your resolutions alive, is what he was arguing, is the anxiety that cripples you. 
So what do I do? How do I move into a year without falling into that black hole? Well, because I'm a pastor and I can't help it, and also just because I love the Bible, um, I, I went to, I uh, just immediately started thinking about Jesus' teaching on anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' kind of like greatest hits. Like it's all put together in one sermon. And right towards the middle of it, Jesus begins to talk about anxiety, about the fears and the, and the worries, the nervousness and the concerns that you have about what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, what you're going to do, what you're going to eat. And, and then he gives, in the midst of the anxiety about all these things, his kind of antidote, his answer for that anxiety, which is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, you'll see behind me. Jesus says, not to be anxious about these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. All these things. I'm not sure what is in your list of all these things, that as you look at the coming year, you're nervous about, that you begin to have anxiety, or maybe it's, it's a controlling anger about. But Jesus' invitation here, just focus on the back half of what he says. All these things will be provided for you is this invitation that the deepest needs and the desires, the very things that I'm anxious about right now, Jesus invites you into a posture of peace as you find those things being provided for. But the way that you go about it is not the way that most of us think, which is to relentlessly chase after the things that you're anxious about or to run for, anxiously run from them. What Jesus says is the way that you go about dealing with your anxiety is about putting your attention and your pursuit not on or away from the things that you're anxious about, but about what he says is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. An undistracted pursuit of God, as A.W. Tozer put it. And so just as we begin the, kind of the coming year, we're going to be taking the month of January in this series that we're calling Seek First, taking it from Jesus' line here, considering what it looks like for this coming year to be one of that, like I just said a moment ago from Tozer, what would it look like for this year to become one of undistracted pursuit of God? How do we truly seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do we make this kind of priority? What does that look like within our lives? And so the first two weeks, today and next week, is largely going to be about um, more of the individual, personal, your own cultivation of seeking first. And then the next two weeks of, of this month are going to be us looking at what shape, what particular shape is this going to take for our community in the next 12 months? What does it mean for collective to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What, is it, what does that look like? So that's where we're going, right? Here we go. But what I want to do... For today, is, is I really do, I, I, just because this is where most of my, my heart has been over the past couple weeks leading up to this, is, is really considering Jesus' invitation about seeking first as the antidote to anxiety. Um, I want to I hone in on that. And, and the way that I would like to do this is by looking at um, what I believe is one of the, the passages that's in the back of Jesus' mind when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be provided for you. And it's Psalm 27. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Psalm 27 today, Psalm of David, like I said, I believe this is what, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you, he's got Psalm 27 on the mind. He's got this Psalm of David on the mind. And so just to reflect on this today as we enter into a new year, how can we enter into this year with a, with a response to this anxiety, the unknown and the uncertain, Psalm 27. So will you join me in standing if you're able for the reading of the scriptures this morning? So Psalm 27, David pens. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my, adver- because of my adversaries, uh, show me your way, Lord. Adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the, I'm certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Um, Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that through David's words, you would bring us into the sort of heart and life of confidence that David displays here. Amid our anxiety, amid the fear and the concerns of the coming year, the uncertainty and the unknown, would you become our one certainty and our one thing that we know most deeply, our light and our salvation? Would you be our stronghold? Be with us today. Amen. Go and be seated. So like I said a moment ago, this idea of seeking first, I believe Jesus, when he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, was pulling from a handful of psalms and kind of condensing them and bringing them together. And one of them is Psalm 27. So today, I just want to move through Psalm 27, really considering three kind of big things that that come out of the psalm. The first is what is what David's facing? What is when David looks up into the future, what is David facing? Second, What does David do about it? And third, why does he do it? So what's David facing? What does he do about it? And why does he do it? That's all I really want to look at today. And so I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles open. Follow me through the passage because we're going to continue to bring that up, whether that's in in your real Bible or your your phone. And I will will just guess that you're not playing. I don't know what we play anymore. I remember Angry Birds, and that was kind of where it ended for me. Um, so whatever, we just will pretend you're not playing. Um, so, but, but do follow, follow me in the passage as we consider this, what David is facing, what he does about it, and why he does it. Now, the first is just to consider, like I said, what, what David is facing as he looks out into the world. And 
When you read Psalm 27, I just was kind of interested. You know, here's David's response to his fear. Started looking around at some of these articles on New Year's anxiety, and I came across one written by um, a um, Beverly Hills kind of like, you know, therapist office, like what to do with New Year's anxiety. I was like, all right, here we go, right? Just down the road, let's see what comes up. And uh, most of it you, you would expect. You know, it was things like um, cutting negative people out of your life, um, trying hypnotherapy. Um, there was some reference to like distra- actually just distracting yourself. Um, my, my favorite is always the cutting negative people out of your life. I'm just like, man, I w- we wish we had that um, ability to do that, but we can't. Um, no, you guys were all with family for like two weeks. You know what I'm talking about. You just can't cut these people. Anyway, um, but most of it would it'd be what you would, would expect and kind of like the, you know, Instagram, you know, therapy kind of stuff. It was cut negative people out of your life. Don't focus on the negative. That was the big thing. Don't get caught up in the negative what ifs, but just focus on the positive, right? Do the hypnotherapy. Get, get the essential oils, you know, lather yourself in lavender and, and then just don't focus on the negative. Focus only on the positive. Now, I do this, it's easy to make fun of, but I, I say all this because it's just so interesting that, that, that some variants of that, maybe it's not the lavender and the crystals and the hypnotherapy, but some level of that like generalized optimism is how most of us deal with our anxiety. Stop playing the like what ifs. Stop doing the fear spiral. Stop doing the worst case scenario stuff. Focus on the positive. Focus on what you can control. And what's wild is when you come to Psalm 27, David does just the opposite. David's doing no like positive optimism here. He continues to name the worst case scenarios. Like just look back with me in verse three. He says, even though this is him doing imaginative thinking about what might happen in the future, though, even though an army deploys against me, though a war breaks out against me, David is the king of Israel, is, is ruling and reigning, so he knows he's got all these other empires and kingdoms and things within the nation that are trying, that are going after him. And so he looks at the future and he goes, even though a war breaks out, even though enemies come against me, the worst case scenario when it comes to economic, political, and even for himself as king, physical danger, he goes down the fear spiral to the worst case scenario, thinking about that physical danger. But he doesn't just do that. In verse 10, he gives us another even though. He says, even if my father and my mother abandon me, So notice he hits both sides of the spectrum. He's hitting on over here, physical danger, economic, political strife and danger. It is an election year. And then on the other side over here, he starts thinking about the emotional sorrow and pain. The worst case scenario of being rejected by your own parents, losing your own parents. So David is not content to look into his future from an optimistic, positive, let's focus on what's within my control and what I can do about it. He goes to the depths of the worst case scenarios. War and violence, the kingdom falling apart, and those closest to him rejecting him and turning him away. He doesn't lather himself in lavender. There's no positivism here. There's no always look on the bright side. He names the worst case scenario on the full spectrum. And so to read Psalm 27, you likely aren't a king, you know, ruling and worried about all of that. But I just, to read Psalm 27 for what it's meant to be read as, is scripture that speaks to your heart. What would it look like if you wrote your own Psalm 27? What's on your spectrum of the worst case scenarios? What, what, what fallout, as you look into this, this coming year, 
What would be your worst case scenarios with your health, with your relationships? I was joking, but not when I talk about it being an election year. We're moving, like, how many of you had a friend before 2020, right? Right? Or before 2016? You had, and then we don't talk anymore, right? We're just like, and you're, we're going to go through that again. Here we go. Get ready. Worst case scenario. What are, what are you going through? With your career, it's stalling out or even you losing your job, economic uncertainty, relationships. You're just terrified of spending another week on the apps, <laughs> like trying to find that relationship. Your family, your children. What are the things that when you look at the coming year, that honestly you list as the worst case scenarios that could come true? See, it's not until you step into doing that kind of work with the psalm that you're reading it as it's meant to be read. You're meant to enter into this. You may not be a king worried about armies and wars. You may not be worried about losing your parents, but, but what is on the full range of the worst case scenario for you? See, it's not until you enter into that, one, are you truly reading Psalm 27, but it's also that you, we aren't really able to grasp the weight then of what is so shocking and honestly appealing about the fact that David plays through his worst case scenarios in the coming future as he looks down the line and then he is still able to say in verse three, my heart will not be afraid. Verse three, I will still be confident. Do you have something that even in the midst of you playing through your worst case scenarios fills you up not with dread or fear but confidence? What, is, what does David do about it? What, is, what does he think through in the midst? How does he get this kind of confidence, this kind of resilience? Verse four, I have asked one thing from the Lord. This is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. What is David's response to looking at all the worst case scenarios. I, I just, I just want to like live in the presence of God and I want to see his beauty. See, most of us, when we have like looking at your coming year, I, I even, I mean, we're a few days, we're a week into it now. When you think about your prayers for 2024, what's the one thing that you're asking from the Lord? See, most of us, it, it really ends up going to, at least for myself, I'm speaking for Ryan here, is most of my prayers as I look to the future largely get built up around a lot of do nots. Don't let this happen. Don't let that happen. Keep me from that. I really would love, God, for you to stack the deck in my favor so that this doesn't happen. Most of my desires, most of my loudest prayers, unchecked and unjust, just given, largely refer around, keep me from this. And God, let it go, easy breezy. That's what I'm looking for here. And so what's wild is David looks at the worst case scenario and his first prayer is, God, what I need in the midst of this is not the absence of my problems, but the presence of you. Just look at this. The closest do nots that we get from him in his prayer comes in verse nine. Do not, what? Let those armies come after me. Do not let my parents forsake me. No, don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. And then again, do not leave me or abandon me. The closest thing that we get to David praying for the absence of his problems comes in verse 12. Do not give me over to the will of my foes. 
But notice that what David prays here isn't, don't let my foes come for me. Don't let me, you know, just wipe my problems away from the problem of the earth. It's don't let me fall to their, to their will, their appetite, their desire. Don't let me fall to my fears, not keep me from them, but keep me from falling to them. Do you see just how like, wild this is? Do you feel the tension within yourself that this is not how you pray most of the time? This is not the primary desire that you have of your heart? So what, what does David know that we don't? I think David's lived long enough at this point that he realizes that for him and for us to place anything else as his one thing desire, if he does that, he will never ever be able to get that life of confidence that he, that he wants, that life of confidence that he desires, the life of confidence that you long for. Why? Because, because everything else is, is so difficult to obtain and impossible to hold on to. Is it your work? Is it financial stability? Is it your health? Is it clarity over your plans? You want God's seal of approval on your ambitions for them all to come true in the coming year? What, what are those things that, that you, as you think about your anxiety over the coming year, if you spend enough time, and this is like the fun stuff that I think for two weeks of us not gathering, this is what Ryan's been working through, is me looking at what are all my anxieties over the coming year and realizing that at the root of those anxieties are desires that I'm holding up that I must have in order to be good, safe, or happy. So I've got to have my family look this way. My financial stability has got to be this way. My career has got to be over like this. And this has to look this way. And I've got to, my body has to look like that in order for me to be good, in order for me to be safe. And my very anxiety, this is the thing that like clicked for me, reveals how stupid it is to hold those as my key desire. Just, just, just think about this for a moment. If you're anxious about something, it's proving itself as not being a worthy source of putting all your confidence on. You all didn't go to bed last night, you know, tossing and turning that the sun would rise in the morning. You just went to bed. Or you scrolled for five hours and then slowly passed asleep, like whatever you did, you know. But, but most of us in your anxiety for the coming year, you're not, most, most of you in the room, the majority of us I'd be willing to wager, you're not really worried about the food that you're going to eat in the coming year. Because you live next door to, you know, 15 different grocery stores and restaurants that you can go to. You're not, you're not worried about it. Why? You take it because you, you take those things for granted. The silliness is that those things really can't be taken for granted, but, but just step back for a moment. If you're placing all of your desire, the one thing that you ask of the Lord is, God, don't let me get sick. God, don't let that relationship break. God, don't let me go through a, a season of financial instability, of confusion. God, don't... Don't let my career, everything I've been building up for the past decade, decades, don't let that fall out from underneath me. God, don't let my family first. You just realize how unstable all those things are. And your anxiety reveals it. And so what David has found here is that the confident life has to be built around a primary desire of the heart which is able to cash the check that it's given that is able to be as steadfast and sustainable as the sun rising and setting, as, as trustworthy as the synapses that even those aren't very trustworthy, but, but there's the givenness of, 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 of life. He, you need something like that. And that's why David goes, man, I've found the thing. 
My, my heart has been set on the one desire that even though I could lose anything in my life, I will never lose everything. I found the one desire in my life that even though all in my life might fall apart, armies and war and family strife, that the center can still hold. You see, most of us, we have prayers that so often the things that we ask God are not necessarily bad things, but are very anxious praying about them. I just believe that so often God just shakes his head and smiles. We don't realize that we're using God as a means to an end of going after our one desire, and it's not him. But David, in the midst of all of his trials, in the midst of his problems, his fears of the future... David says, the one thing that I'm looking for here, the one thing that I need is the presence of God to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, all of the uncertain and unknown days of my life. The thing that I need most is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about why David places God as as being a trustworthy source of of his desire. But, But just... We'll come back to that. But what I want to consider now is is what does it look like to honestly do this? What does it look like? A heart that truly desires God with the fullness of all of its attention set on him. What does that actually look like practically? Like in the lividness beyond just like your heart wanting that. And it's kind of, well, just notice verse eight. My heart says this about you. My one desire. My heart says this about you. Seek his face, that is, seek the presence of God. And then he says, Lord, I will seek your face. The heart that desires God above all else, sets God as its one thing, is marked by the posture of seeking. Now, I don't know the last time you, you sought something, but just think about it. Maybe it was the keys this morning, the remote, the dog, cat, you know, pet, or, or you know, your kid. No, it, it, you laugh, but it happens, man. I, we were, I, was, I, I forgot to text and get the permission, so I'm not going to talk about it. But we were at this um, like, you know, park gathering thing, and one of the kids crawled up into this box that looked like it was just a tunnel, but it actually you could go up in it. And so the kid disappeared. And so what happened? Dad immediately goes into seek mode. He's running around, at, right? What ha- seeking, or um, we, were, we went and visited the church that I grew up in when we were in Missouri with my family. And at, at some point from leaving the gathering to you know, getting to the car, um, we lost my journal. It's my favorite little journal that I've got. You know, I've got all my favorite pens. I got the one with all the different colors and stuff on it for the like highlighter, right? This is my thing, right? And it's gone. And so I'm like going back through the church building, and it's this you know huge you know mega church building. So it took an hour. Um, I'm running up and down aisles. I'm like I was over here, then I was talking to this person. Did I set it down over here? And so think about the last time you sought something, and think about what that feels like you get this tunnel vision where you begin to like envision and embody in your mind's eye the thing that you're looking for. And it becomes a pursuit. It becomes uh, this, this intention-driven focus. You're calling out. You're looking for it. You're turning up the house, right? You're looking kind of like a crazy person running around and you're you know, doing this and, and jumping down. Have you seen you know, my, my journal? I don't know what you're talking about, but you're just trying everything. Where's the lost and found in this giant church? You're looking for it because I, I need it. I, I, I can't go on without this thing, whether it's your kid or your, your dumb journal. <laughs> but just notice that like, when any of us have experienced this, that seeking, not just looking for something, 
You know, my, when my kids ask me for something, very often I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll look for it. I lost my shoe. Okay, and what do I do? My house is a pit, so I don't go seeking for it. We look for it. We just kind of, I don't know, you know, you're just taking your time because you really don't care. Like, it's like we have 15 shoes. You can find something to wear. But seeking is different than just looking. It's, it's, it's about pursuit. It's about a drivenness. And so what David is saying here is when my, my, the primary desire of my heart, when it is fully on God, the way that gets expressed is in a seeking after his presence and his face. Seeking is for those who are no longer content to simply just know about God. They are those who want to know him. That's the heart of the, see, the seeker. The heart of the seeker is the one who is no longer content with like a procrastinating faith. One day. The heart of the seeker is the one who, who is unwilling to hang their hat on past spiritual experiences. Move, they, their desire is to move further up and further in, a deeper and greater experience of the God that they've met, the God that they know. What A.W. Tozer called the paradox of love is to continue to seek after that which you have already found. And so the seeking heart is the, what does it look like? For an individual, for a person, to have their one desire to be to dwell in the presence of God, the way that it looks like is them seeking after God with all they got. To broaden it, what does it look like for a church whose one heart desire is for experiencing a greater beholding of his glory? It looks like a church that seeks his face. Now the question gets, that's all, maybe resonates with your heart, maybe resonates with your desire, but practically, what does it look like to actually seek his face? Because you would imagine, it sounds like all this energy and Ryan jumping around on the stage, it sounds like it's something, you know, some pilgrimage that we've got to go on. We've got to go, you know, get the right shoes and we're going to go do this hike up to the top of a mountain and oh, we'll behold the glory of God, that, right? We think it's going to be some some huge thing that we have to give ourselves to. And, and I honestly, I roll, I'm not kidding with you. I rolled my eyes this week when I realized what it is in the passage. And you're going to too. But, but it's just, it's follow the text. How does David seek God? Verse six, I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. The first way that he seeks his face is musical worship. <laughs> Just singing. As, as David writes a little bit earlier in Psalm 22, the Lord dwells in the praises of his people. And so David, in his chasing after, seeking after God, he goes, man, I'm gonna prioritize. I'm gonna give myself to worshiping God with joyous sounds, singing about who God is and what he's done. And David knows firsthand that in that, that communing presence of delight, and worship, celebrating and delighting in who God is and what he's done and our identity as his people, that that is more than just song. God dwells in that space. And so David says, I'm gonna prioritize. I'm gonna give myself to that. And so seeking God in 2024, the simple thing would just be prioritizing the Sunday gathering as worshiping with people, worshiping with God's people. If you want to go above and beyond, yeah, get your, you know, get your worship playlist. Start your day with some form of worship. End your day in the middle of the day. Have some song that you sing and bring that into the rest of your day. But the simple beginning point here is prioritizing worship is the place where we seek and behold God. 
But I, I also have to add, I said three, there's, there's actually one more that I, meant, I noticed last night, is um, I will offer sacrifices in his tent. Part of David's worship is not just singing in songs, but in the giving of what he has. And, and that is part of him seeking after God. You know, when you're seeking after something, you begin, you don't look like, care if you look like an idiot, screaming your kid's name or your dog, you know, running up and down the street. You don't care if you make a mess of the house. Because why? I, I want to, everything is about getting that thing. And so his sacrifices that he's bringing here are, are sacrifices of gratitude, sacrifices of, they're part of his worship. It's him not just giving his words, but even his possessions as part of his pursuit for God. And so the first thing we have is worship. It's that simple. What's the seventh? Next one. Verse seven. Hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. So the first way that he seeks the face of God is through worship. And here in verse seven, the next way he pursues the face of God is, is through prayer. I told you. You can't, oh, wow, it's really that. Hear my voice, God. I'm, I'm, he's entering into this communing conversation with God in the midst of his anxiety. In the midst of his problems, back in the beginning of, of verse 6, right before he talks about his worship that moves into prayer, is it's above my enemies all around me. That's where I enter into the worship place. His worship isn't him, isn't coming after his enemies have gone away or when they're not there. It's in the midst of his enemies surrounding him that he sings. It's in the midst of that that he sacrifices. It's in the midst of that that he prays, hear my voice and answer me. He's talking about the sort of prayer that is not just talking to God, but listening to him. Hear my voice and answer me. Your servant is listening. So he's entering into prayer, and this is how he seeks God's face in the midst of all of his concerns and fears. Philippians chapter four, you'll see behind me, Paul picks up on this. When he writes, don't worry, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what we find is not that the requests are what are given, but verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So David, in the midst of his anxiety, is not worrying about anything, but he's bringing his requests and his petitions, and in doing so, he's finding a peace and a confidence in the midst of all that he's going through. It's prayer. And so again, practically for yourself, is what does what your relationship look like to prayer, communing, talking to, and listening to God? For those of you personally, this is just continue, just be invitation. Continue to lean into what we developed with the daily prayer practice with the Lord's Prayer earlier this fall. For those of you that need a, a restart or that you weren't here with us, I've kind of condensed all of that, as much of that as I can onto one page on our website. That's just collectivechurch.com slash Lord's Prayer now. And, and, and in perpetuity, I believe, it will be <laughs> available for you there to return to and, and rebuild that. But just how... Do you have a posture that seeking God's face looks like, hear my voice when I call, answer me? But then also, not just personally, but communally, as Lorenzo talked about, next, next week we have monthly prayer nights. And it's where we as a community say, God, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to us and answer us. It's the heart of prayer is how he seeks God. And then finally in verse 11, he says, because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord, and lead me on a level path. 
Now, throughout the scriptures, in particular, when we're dealing with the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, this language of whenever you're talking, show me your way, the Lord's way, being led on the Lord's path, it is always a primary metaphor for talking about the teaching for scriptures. And so, once again, I told you, you roll your eyes once you see it, that seeking God, pursuing the manifest presence, beholding the glory of God, you expect this big thing, and it's like... So I'm going to go to church and sing, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to read my Bible. Like, it's that simple, is what he says. God, because of what I'm going through, because of my adversaries, what I need is to live into the way that you've called me to be. I need to walk on the path of relationship to you as who you've made me to be. And the scriptures are the way through which, God, you shape and fashion me to walk on that journey, to go on that pathway. And so to seek God's face is to give ourselves over to a life of worship and sacrifice is included in that, prayer and devotion to scriptures. And so the, the practical for this one is, at least for us as a community, the primary form that this takes is through our integrated Bible study, which includes our weekly Bible passage that every single week is on our website at um, collectivechurch.com slash weekly Bible passage. It's also on Instagram and stuff. But the whole point of this is an integrated mode of learning how to walk in the way of the Lord. As we personally read the scriptures before Sunday, we come and we sit together and we see what it's meaning for our community. And then we gather each week in our discipleship groups to discuss and apply what this is inviting us into, to actually walk the path and not just look at it in the text or to hear someone else talk about it. And so this, this, this is, as we're setting out in the new year, it, it really is this simple. Now, some of you in here, I know you, um, you are what I don't, and I, would, I, don't, I don't call you this to anyone, I do think about you this way, is you're very holy, is, is the way that I think, it's super holy. Um, and what, what happens is whenever we talk about um, pursuing God, and specifically the practices being this simple, you roll your eyes, just like I did, and so I'm not holding it against you, but you believe that it must be something greater and bigger. It can't be that simple. Uh, prioritizing the worship gathering, praying on a re regular basis and reading scripture. Like, I need something more. I need something to sink my teeth into. Just, just two things for, for those of you in here. The first is, um, don't run past the gift that God has made himself present to you in such ordinary and simple ways. Um, just survey any, any other religion any other spirituality. And what you will regularly find is there's all sorts of things you gotta go through and do to get to the presence of God, to get anything close, let alone the presence of God is a uniquely Christian theme that you could enter into that. But get any glimpse of, of the divine, anything close to this. It's bending backwards. You gotta do every, you know, you, physical things that you do, your body, the purge yourself. There's all kinds of stuff. And here, within the Christian faith, you have this gift that God makes himself, he says, you will see my glory and my beauty by just entering into musical worship, by just setting aside time to be with me in prayer, to reading scripture and reflecting on it, you will find me there. But also what I find is sometimes the, the super holy who want more to sink their teeth into often leave these, these very three basic foundational pieces untouched. It's like, what I really need is like, you know, super fasting. I'm gonna fast for the whole year. It's like, okay, <laughs> let me know how that goes. But it's like, when was the last time you read scripture? And it's like, well, I've moved on past that. It's like, I, David hasn't. Like, when was the last time you just tried sitting and praying? Like, you know, well, I need to fast in order to pray. Like, I don't know. Like, 
But I, I, I joke, but honestly, at the same point, these three are honestly the foundation from which all other spiritual practices, of which I'm a huge fan, all other spiritual practices grow from. What is fasting but prayer? What, what is Sabbath but a day of worship, right? What is solitude but a, but a posture of prayer? Memorization, meditation on Scripture. It's about reading the Scriptures, being led in the way of the Lord. And so what all of our desires, it really is this simple. It's something where if you don't even believe in Jesus today, you can begin to walk in this. And those of us who've been following Jesus for decades still have room to grow and blossom and find more and more of the presence of God within. It's really that simple. So we've talked about what David's facing. Now I've, I've tried to hit on how and what he does about it. But the big question then again is why? As I mentioned a moment ago, David has found in God something or someone that is able to be a worthy source of all of his desire and all of his seeking. Why does he think that? Why do you? Why should you? He does three parts of this. He does more, but, but for the sake of time. He does three things. The first is David roots his desire and thinking in his, or excuse me, his seeking, his desire and his seeking in, uh, in, in theology, what he knows about God. He says in verse one, the Lord is light, the Lord is salvation, the Lord is the stronghold. What is he? He's, 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 he's doing poetic theology here. He's talking about who God is. He's light, he's illumination, he's guidance, he's life. He's what? Salvation, he's healing and redemption that no matter what I fall into, he is there to pull me out of it and stronghold no matter what comes against me, he contains me and holds me. He's, he's got theology about who God is worked into his, not just his mind, but his heart. Because he's not just reciting theology textbook here. This is personal theology for him. The Lord is not just light, but what does he say? My light. The Lord is not just salvation in general, my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold, not of you know, everybody in general or just some holy, my life, he says. So he has a theology that's deeply personal. He has an understanding of who God is that has become his, his experience. God is my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. So he seeks and desires the one who he knows all about and has experienced. The second reason why he pursues him is his history. In the middle of verse 9, in the midst of his do nots, you have him say, you have been my helper. So notice again the my, he's reflecting on who God is. But here, he doesn't talk about just who God is, but who God has been for him. He's reflecting on his past tense. You have been God, my helper. And that's what he bases his now present and future confidence in, is who God has been up to this point. God, you've been my helper. You were there with me through thick and thin. You have been through me through the biggest messes that I never thought I would get through, and yet somehow I did. And so now in the midst of all the uncertainty and the unknown, I've got the God riding with me and guiding me who was with me through all those other things. And so I can, I can rest confident. I don't have time for it, but in verse 9... Man, it's, this is so good, but I just want to do a whole sermon on it. Verse 9, notice that the one thing that even drips of any anxiety for David in this whole psalm in the midst of all that he's going through, and verse 9, is an, is an anxiety about losing him, about losing God. Don't be angry with me forever. He's, he's so, what can only be referred to in some cases as, as a fear of God, this holy reverence and awe 
for the sacredness of life with God, that he's, his one terror is not armies coming after him, families abandoning him, but that he might do something that would sever the relationship with God that he has. That's his one anxiety amidst them all because that's his one desire. But notice once again why God is such a good source of our confidence is because how quickly that anxiety drifts up. Verse 10, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord cares for me. So even if I might blow up my entire life and everyone that I currently know and love would forsake me, even if everyone abandons me and leaves me behind because of all the stupid that I've done, the Lord cares for me. The Lord, this, this word in Hebrew is, is he, he picks me up, he gathers me in. So some, some translations will, will put it as the Lord has adopted me. Even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord has made me his own. But other translations will pick up that it's language of like a father carrying a child, holding me close. And so David has not just a personal theology, not just a history, but here, this is the language of the heart. This is about an experience of God holding him in the midst of his anxiety and fear. And so these three things come together, and this is why David says, I've got confidence. But the one thing that we can't pass over as we begin to land the plane, hopefully, you never know with me, is, is you really can't get beyond the fact that for David, all of this confidence, all of his seeking, all of his desire is given to God, and yet it's all wrapped up in and around the tabernacle. Do you notice this? What's the one thing that he desires? Not just to, to, to dwell with God forever, but to dwell in the house of the Lord. Seeking him, not just in general, but in the temple in verse four. Verse five, he will conceal me in his shelter. Once again, he's talking about the tabernacle. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. And then in verse six, I will offer sacrifices in the tent. And so this psalm is just as much about David's desire and seeking of God as it is about the tabernacle. The tent of God's presence. The tabernacle for David is, is, as he thinks about God's faithfulness and his history, it's the tabernacle that he looks at that reminds him. This is the covenant making, the covenant keeping God of Israel who is with me and for me. And the tabernacle is my physical example of that. That no matter what armies come against me or who forsakes me, I've got the temple in my backyard, the tabernacle for him. I've got the tent in my backyard. I have the presence of God with me as he seeks and wants to find more about God and experience him more deeply, where does he go? He goes to the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is the sign of his seeking. It's, it's the heart of his desire. It's the symbol that God is inviting and wants that relationship with him. Throughout the, multiple times in David's life, the tabernacle was the place of refuge and hiding for him. Literally, when his enemies were chasing after him, it was in the tent that he went and hid in the presence of God. It was the place of his provision and satisfaction. When he needed food, where did he find it? It was in, right? And so this is what you, you can't read past is that David's whole attention here is on the tabernacle. And what he's doing here is he's speaking about his own example, but the spirit writing through him is also giving us this prophetic foretaste of what those of you who are here for the last teaching of the year are hopefully connecting the dots. Because once again, to go back to what we celebrated a month ago, what was John's way of talking about the gift of Christmas? Is that in Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
So what this means is that in order to read Psalm 27 as, as what we could call messianic literature, meant to be read in light of who Jesus is, means that if David's doing all of this searching and he's going into the temple or the tabernacle to do it, then Jesus is the means through which you do that. If the tabernacle is the sign of God's faithfulness for David, Jesus is the sign of God's faithfulness for you. And so you just read through verses four and five one more time, but now we read them in light of who Jesus is and we find, I have asked one thing of the Lord, it is what I desire, to dwell in Christ all the days of my life. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in Jesus. For he will conceal me in Jesus in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the, the cover of his tent. He will hide me in Jesus no matter what I go through. And he will set me high on the rock. So Jesus is the primary one that you're wondering, why, why should I put any basis and hope and confidence in this God? I've got all sorts of things I could desire. I've got all sorts of things you could seek for in the coming year. Why, why God as the center point and not the accessory to the main thing? Because in the life of Jesus, you have the portrait of the faithfulness of God that is actually withstanding. Go back a moment ago. Do you remember how I talked about how, how fragile, how fickle all of those other little desires that you might have, your ambitions and resolutions of this coming year might be? All it takes is one phone call. Family life, everything falls apart. All it takes is one, one accident. One, it's so fickle. And yet in Jesus Christ, you have this portrait, not just portrait, this person who is worth basing it all on and entering into it all through who no matter what you go through, no matter what you fail in, no matter what sin, you have forgiveness. He is the means through which the Lord cares for you and has adopted you and carries you. He is the place where you see the beauty and the splendor of God. He is the one whom we live every single day in the midst of his, in the presence of God. And so the invitation to read this well is to say, so to seek God means I'm gonna chase after Jesus. To meditate on God, I'm going to meditate on Jesus. To enter into this life, I'm going to receive him. This, this is how you find a life of confidence. As you built it on the one who not even death could hold. This is how you have a life that, like him, begins and ends in confidence. The beginning, verse 1, whom should I fear? Whom should I dread? My heart will not be afraid. I will still be confident. Verses 1 and 3. And then at the end, verse 13, he says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. What's the land of the living mean? For some reason, I always think of land of lakes, the like margarine, and I don't know why my brain does that with this passage. <laughs> land of the living, I'm just like land of lakes. I know that's not it, but that's just what my brain does. What does it mean to see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living? There's actually two, two things that it means. Well, the first is that the land of living, just on a base reading, means right, right here. You welcome. Hi, you're in the land of the living. Welcome. It's it's this life. It's here and now. And so, what David is saying here for him is his confidence, his certainty is that my perception and beholding of the goodness of God is not simply something that I'm waiting for. It it's available and it's going to be right here, right now in my life. It's going to be in 2024, in the midst of all of my problems. 
I'm gonna see the goodness of God even in the midst of whether or not my mom and dad forsake me. I'm gonna see the goodness of God even though an army deploys against me. I'm gonna see the goodness of God even in the midst of sickness and disease and pain and loss and trials and confusion. The goodness of God is found in the presence of those things, not in the absence of them. And so one level, what he's saying is my confidence is I'm gonna see God's goodness. He's gonna show up in the midst of all those things. He's gonna set me high on the rock. He's gonna hide me in the cover of his tent. He's gonna set my, high, my head high above my enemies, above all of those tensions and problems. Not in the absence of them, but in the midst of them, he's gonna give me that confidence. But, but what most commentators and scholars identify is that, that this smacks a little bit too much of something beyond just right here and right now talk for David. Confidence that I'm gonna see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. What happens, does, this, does his confidence go away when he's facing down death? When David gets to the end of his life and he's laying up in the bed, he's about to close his eyes and breathe his last, does he still have some kind of certainty that he's going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living? The gift of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death is Yes. So this is, I just, this, is, this is how good you have it in the midst of all your problems is you have a God that's committed to you and for you right here and right now in the land of the living. And even when your death comes, which most of you are young enough that we don't really think about it that much, but it will, you still can have a confidence moving into death that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. That there's a resurrection life and a renewed creation that I am going to be brought in. I remember Tom Wright was talking about the gospel and the resurrection to like a, a taxi cabbie in, in and around London. And uh, as he gets to kind of the end of the explanation of what the resurrection is all about, this kind of, you know, Londoner cabbie says, well, if the resurrection's true, it's all rock and roll, right? And this is his way of saying, like, as someone's grasped what this all means is, no matter what you go through, no matter what you're facing, you can have a confidence and a certainty that you have a power stronger than death and a person committed to you in the midst of it all. And so you can move through it all with a deep confidence. I'm certain I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And so then he closes in verse 14 where David's language now shifts. All throughout this passage, he's been doing self-talk or he's been talking to God. But in verse 14, he now turns and he talks to you and me. He invites us in to the very life of confidence that he has. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Waiting, as most of us are likely prone to think what David is inviting us into, waiting is not... Um, you, you know, you think of a waiting room. Like we have a whole thing that we call it for this. And the Hebrew word is, I, I, I'll never forget that. It's, the, it's rooted in the word for, for a string to wait. A string that's being pulled tight and is a, that tension before it breaks. And, and most of us go into this year and our fear is the tension of what's gonna happen when your desires, your dreams, that those things break and fall apart. That's the tension most of you live in, the anxiety that we live in, is we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. We're waiting for that thing to be wrong. We're waiting for that diagnosis. We're waiting to lose. We're waiting for that relationship to fall apart. We live in a tension of waiting for the worst case scenario. And so every single year, New Year's anxiety is we get a new string out. And we're like, can't wait to see how long this one lasts. 
And what David invites you and I into is not a waiting for the worst case scenario, but a waiting for the Lord. That we begin to live our lives with the tension, pulling and waiting, not for the worst case scenario, but for God's presence and his goodness and his provision to break in. To what it would look like just to move into the next year with, with this head on the swivel, this anticipation that you're, you're not looking for the worst case scenarios, not because they're, you don't haven't thought about them, but in the midst of all of them, you've got your head on the swivel for how is God going to show up in ways that I currently don't even, I couldn't even think of. How is God in the midst of losing a parent? How is God going to be so faithfully present to me in a way that I never would have imagined? How is God in the midst of, in the midst of divorce, in the midst of physical sickness and diseases and the questions and the confusion that comes through that, family strife. See, those things become the tension point in which we're waiting and waiting to see how God's going to break in. And Jesus is the one thing that you set at the center of it and you go, okay, because of the resurrection, because of who Jesus is, because he's my tabernacle and my temple, I put my attention on him and I just keep waiting and watching for the way that Jesus is going to show up in a new way.